Clara has the privilege of having the Word of God, of reading it yourself, but there's a peculiar power in the reading of the Scriptures. Hence, the Lord our God consecrates us as his word is read from Proverbs 22, 24 to 29. This was uh, Jesus' elementary school, the book of Proverbs. He was wisdom incarnate. And when you think of, do you see a man, verse 29, skillful in his work. Christ was the perfectly skillful man. He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And Jesus does it one step better. He is king and operates with his skill. Proverbs 22, verses 24 to 29. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Be not one of those who gives pledges, who put up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And our two New Testament texts are are the brackets of the most amazing week in human history. From Mark 11, verses 1 to 10. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one's ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they'd cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. And they're quoting now from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And from Mark 15, verses 16 through 20, at the end of the most amazing week in human history, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they let him out to crucify him. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you say together, Hallelujah. Our Lord, now we pray that even as you promise to be with us, we pray that you will come as your word is preached. We pray that you will, Lord, this is, this is we are dealing with the most amazing week in human history. So not only amaze us 
Uh, But we pray, our Lord, that you would rivet us on these things and transform us by what is the gospel. And we pray this in the name of the gospel incarnate, Jesus Christ, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And you'll want to turn to page 5. Uh, for the uh, where the the two texts will be, well, at least particularly the first one we'll be looking at. History is more or less bunk. We want to live in the present. And the only history that is worth a tinker's dam is the history that we make today. That's that's the full statement of Henry Ford, uh, who was the inventor of what we know of today as the automobile. History is more or less bunk. We want to live in the present. The only history that's worth a tinker's dam is the history we make today. Brothers and sisters, that's the view of our world today. Henry Ford was taken to task for the rest of his life by making that statement. And today, that is exactly the view that we have, is that basically history is absolutely meaningless. meaningless. Live for today. That's all that's important. But where, where would we be without the Model T? Where would the world of automobiles be if it were not for the Model T and its history? And where would we be without the most amazing years and week and day of human history? And that's what I'm trying to impress upon you last week, this week, next week. This is the most amazing time period in history. Imagine this, the years where, where God takes flesh and is born of the Virgin Mary. And, and while we don't know much about his upbringing, he is brought up God-man with his siblings, with his father, with his mother, in this place called Nazareth, a place that was hardly a ho- place hostile to the Jews of which Jesus was a part. And then he bursts on scene some 30 years later as he is baptized by John the baptizer, as he is tempted of the devil, and as he over and over and over again shows, this is not a mere mortal. Now, this one who even raises the dead, this this is nothing less than God himself, God and man, and two distinct natures in one person forever. But, But this was misunderstood by the Jews. Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the Messiah? And they linked that with all of the power that Jesus exercised. And they came to believe that Jesus was going to fulfill their national expectations of squashing Rome and making them preeminent. To put it technically, they wanted to have glory before they had suffering. They wanted to have the crown before they had the cross. And our Lord continues to teach that in that middle part of his ministry, as we've learned. And finally now, we come to that, really, what is his whole um, public ministry that is, in a sense, is distilled into one week from the Sunday of the, of the triumphal entry that really is not triumphal as the way the Jews thought it would be, all the way to that quiet day 
when Jesus is in the tomb on the Saturday. Uh, the most amazing week in human history. And, and it's interesting that, that Mark and, and John spend about a third of their Gospels just, just dealing with this one week, and a little bit less in, in Luke and in Matthew, but not much. They are focused on, on all that happened at this time. So here's what we're going to do today. On page 5, you can probably make a few notes if you want on the what. What was in that most amazing week in human history? And then you'll go to the page where you can take a little bit more notes. Why? Why was this? Now, this is a macabre week, folks, like a horror story. Why? So, and I, I want you not only, I want you to feel these things and, and, and certainly learn from them, but above all else, that you be transformed by what really is the gospel. You see how the story itself was transforming even at the time Christ was on the cross. Okay, so let's deal with what. And that's going to bring you down to Mark chapter 11 and verses 1 through 10 that begins this. It is Sunday. And our Lord, as you would be looking, as you would be looking at a map with Jerusalem at the center, our Lord is coming down from the north, about two miles from Jerusalem, is a little village where Mary lives, where Lazarus lives. That's going to be his, that's going to be his, his Motel 6 for a few days in Bethany. And not far from that, is a place that is called the Mount of Olives that you read about in this text. As he comes, as he comes on this Sunday morning to, into Bethany and Bethpage area, he calls for his disciples to get a colt. Now, what's this all about? Well, in the Old Testament, there are kings uh, that, were, that were installed into their office riding. Well, we don't think much of riding on a donkey, but that was regarded as an imperial kind of a, of a creature to ride on. And even Zechariah, the prophet, prophesied that, the, listen, the Messiah will come to you riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so here is Jesus about ready to come into Jerusalem, and he has his disciples, as you read, go probably into Bethany, and there's a right of impressment that a master had in which you could call for something. And in this case, it's a cult. And you can imagine the disciples say, this is it. This is where Jesus is really going to show that he's the Messiah. Call for the cult. But unlike a king that would just take it, it's made clear in here that Jesus says, the Lord has need of it, a clear declaration of his deity and he'll send it back to you immediately. And of course, they do this. The question's raised. But they say the Lord has need of it. And these are people who think that Messiah is just about ready to come. And he is. Just not again the way they expect. And you can read in the text on this, not really a day of triumphal entry, but it is triumphal at that point, as the people expect that this is Jesus they throw their cloaks on the ground and they adore him. What a contrast will come in but a few days. They adore him and they say, Save us, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is it. The promised messianic kingdom is here. Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem and he is going to begin to get rid of the Roman 
people who have oppressed us and taxed us and treated us miserably, watch what's going to happen. And the whole day is anticlimactic. Jesus goes to the temple, doesn't do anything. Now the next day, on Monday, Jesus goes to the temple again. And the hopes are there. But Jesus doesn't say anything about Rome. Jesus excoriates the religious establishment. He violently and yet without sin overthrows the tables of the money changers and says, my house has become a house of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. What did he do? Well, instead of challenging the death star of Rome, Jesus challenges the major financial engine of all of Jerusalem. That's where you made your money. It was like taking all of the shopping centers of Long Island and putting them together. And of course, the ones that got the biggest cut from the prophets would be the high priest, Caiaphas, and his father-in-law, Annas. That's where they made their money. What's Jesus doing by casting out the money changers in the temple on that Monday? And then, to add, as it were, insult to injury, he sees a fig tree that has not yet borne fruit. It's not the season for it. But he curses it. And the next day, the disciples will find it withered. Only for Jesus to later explain to them, this is what Israel is. Israel does not bear fruit to the glory of God. But what about Rome? What is Messiah going to do with Rome when Israel is in the crosshairs? So on Tuesday of that week, the religious leaders are pretty concerned. They wonder who this guy Jesus really is. Number one, they are, as Pilate would learn, very envious that the people have been following Jesus because of his works of power. Let's face it, he fed 5,000 and 4,000, and he did raise the dead, and he did heal people. And they're envious because they don't have that power. But they want to trip Jesus up, and they ask him one question they ask, is, um, is it right to give taxes to Caesar? And they think they've got Jesus on the horns of the dilemma. If you say, don't pay taxes to, Jesus, to Caesar, Jesus is a revolutionary. If you say, pay taxes to Caesar, then you are kowtowing to the enemies of Israel. And you know Jesus' famous answer, what's on the inscription? Caesar. Render to Caesar's what's Caesar's. Render to God what's God's. They try to trip him up with questions about the resurrection and marriage. And Jesus is always turning the tables on them to their own consternation. So that by Tuesday, the plans are beginning to gel. That they are going to get rid of this man who in every way is challenging their position and their place in life. And it's not coincidental that it's that day that Judas goes to the religious leaders and says, essentially, you want to get this guy? I've got a way I can betray him to you. Wednesday was probably a day of rest for the Lord Jesus and the disciples, not for the ladies who were getting ready for the Passover, getting out every bit of leaven. 
But Jesus would have known the kind of demands on his energies that would take place from Thursday afternoon right through that very, very eventful Friday. And so it is Thursday, and that is the day of the Lord Jesus Christ has the disciples get the lamb. They find an upper room where they meet. And it's at that time that Jesus lets everybody know he's going to be betrayed. And he says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And for you to understand what happens next, you have to realize that the individuals involved, as horrendous as what they did was, they're really actors on the devil's stage doing exactly what the devil wanted. Because the devil was envious. Because the devil's power had been challenged. And so the devil himself was in full cahoots with wanting to get rid of this Lord Jesus. Jesus shows what true leadership and servanthood is as he washes the feet of the disciples. But still they wonder, what does this have to do with Messiah? Jesus gives discourses that we read of in John, uh, talking about his going to the Father, but no mention at all of Rome and vanquishing them. They're done their meal, and Jesus continues to teach them as they go from this part of the city back to this part of the city, and they go to a quiet place. They go to a place called Gethsemane, right near the Mount of Olives, a place of olive trees, a place of rest. The disciples are exhausted, and so they sleep. Jesus is beginning to experience the hellish agonies of what he will experience in a few hours, and he sweats as drops of blood. That's a real medical condition in which a person's internal electrical system is so worked up and exercised it actually forces blood through the sweat pores. Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass for me. What cup? It's the cup of the wrath of God that is to be given by God the judge to all who disobey. If you're willing, let this cup Pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The perfect prayer of absolute surrender to the Father. Jesus is praying. You can imagine the exhaustion already with the intensity of his prayers. And then, as he's done his prayers, he sees, as he looks from that place, torches and troops led by Judas making their way to him. The signal is that Jesus, Judas, in that darkness at night, because it is night, probably near to midnight, Judas would kiss the one who claimed to be the Messiah. He does, and you know what happens, he's arrested. And and it's an amazing sequence of events. It's all a kangaroo trial at this point. And Jesus is captured, he's brought back into the city, and first of all, he's he's brought to the house of the godfather of the religious leaders at that time, Annas, whose whose, uh, son-in-law, Caiaphas, is then the high priest. And Annas wants to know who this is. Are you the Christ? And Jesus has an interesting response. 
He says, you say it, which, which is, can be interpreted in different ways. It's basically, it's, it's just as you say it. He doesn't affirm it, but, but he allows that to come in. And that affirms to Annas that this man is claiming to be the Messiah. And then he is sent to Caiaphas, who is the high priest of that day. And Caiaphas gathers the Sanhedrin, and they question the Lord Jesus. They ask him who he is. And Jesus' answer is cryptic. I say to you, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the clouds at the right hand of God. And what he does is in the face of these religious leaders, he says, I, even as the captive one, I have power over you as the promised Son of Man who will govern all things. And Annas and Caiaphas are irate, and the Sanhedrin is stunned. And then the question comes up about what Jesus had said about the temple. Did you really say you would destroy the temple? But they can't even get three witnesses to agree exactly on what Jesus had said. He had said, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and in three days I will raise it up again. But they saw this or wanted to see it as a threat against their heritage, against their temple, against their, their place of standing and power and authority. How amazing. Jesus does not speak about destroying Rome. He speaks about destroying a temple. And the Jews, in a hatred of Jesus, a, a hatred, incidentally, a hatred that would not stop with the cross, but a hatred of Rome that would continue for another series of decades until in A.D. 70 that temple would be destroyed, never to be rebuilt. Jesus is accused of blasphemy. He makes himself out to be the Son of God. And it's a blasphemy that even extends to the religious leaders where he says, I am more powerful than they. And he says, he'll destroy the temple. Therefore, he is sent, particularly because of blasphemy, to Pilate. They want Pilate to see him executed. They have no authority to execute. They want Jesus out of the picture. And Pilate, Pilate doesn't understand. And Pilate, first of all, doesn't really care if Jews are blasphemous or not. He wasn't a Jew. He sends him to Herod, perhaps the regional governor. Pilate being the provincial governor, Herod being the regional governor. Perhaps Herod would have something to say. Kings of the earth united against the Lord and against his Messiah. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And here's what, humanly speaking, does Jesus in. This man claims to be a king. And Herod... If you let him go, you're showing that you are no friend of Caesar's because he puts himself above Caesar. Herod can't stand that. If that word gets out that Herod has released a person who has even claimed to be greater than Caesar, his position and his life are done. He washes his hands. And giving in to the cry of the mob to 
have Jesus crucified instead of a known criminal Barabbas. He gives Jesus over to the extreme, horrible torture of crucifixion. It began with actually what would be 700 or so Roman soldiers, a few of whom specifically trained for the horrible task of crucifixion that began with the strapping of the victim up to a pole with his arms tied to a ring, and then lashes, no specified number. The Jews said 40 minus 1, but nobody would be counting at this point. Lashes with a long leather whip that it had impregnated in it, pieces of bone and lead, so that when a person was scourged, it wasn't just the scourge that hurt. It was the lashing of that metal or that bone that actually ate in to the nerves and the muscles of the person who was tortured, ripping the skin and exposing the inward organs, as well as, of course, causing the profuse bleeding. We don't know how many lashes Jesus had, but he was to be kept alive. And at the end of that time, Jesus is mocked. This is your king, the bloody pulp with even his own internal organs in many cases being visible and weak and tired and blood spattered. And yeah, they put purple on him to say this is their king, mockery and blasphemy. He's too weak to take the cross beam of the cross. And so a person is impounded, Simon of Cyrene, to help him. And Jesus is made to go to, just without the city, a skull-like place called Golgotha, where he is nailed, not only his hands to the crossbar with the nails going into the wrist so that no bone was broken, so that only bone held up that figure and then legs that were put together, clamped together and nailed to hold him up so that literally he was dying of asphyxiation during all of those hours. It's about 9 o'clock when this happens. This is not a long place to travel, but imagine the exhaustion of the Lord Jesus as he's on the cross on that Friday morning at 9 o'clock. And the words come from him, the most astounding, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And many, many did not, particularly the, the Roman leaders did not. And then to the criminals that were near him, at least one that showed some trust. Father, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This day you'll be with me in paradise. A word of forgiveness, a word of salvation to him. And then what is most remarkable is Jesus is being obedient unto death, barely able at that point even to breathe. A word of duty. He has a responsibility as the firstborn son to see that his mother is provided for. And John and Mary are together, and he says, Woman, behold your son. He does not say mother, because while Mary was his mother, he was to expire. And now the one who would be the son to her, John, is there. Woman, behold your son. And son, behold your mother. Jesus perfectly obeying the fifth commandment.
to honor father and mother. And then in, in the most amazing of the mysteries, in this most amazing week, the whole area is covered in darkness. It's midday midnight, if you will. And it's that darkness that, above all things, represents the outer darkness of hell that is, as it were, taken up to enshroud the Lord Jesus. And in the midst of that darkness, Jesus cries the question that is ultimately unanswerable. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The curse that falls upon those who forsake God, being forsaken by God, falls upon the God-man himself. Mystery of mysteries. And then while Jesus rejected sour wine with some myrrh that would have cut some of the pain before, he cries out, I thirst. And he is given vinegar. He's given vinegar that he takes. Why? That with his remaining minutes of breath and strength, he may utter two words, not in gasping agony, and in the throes of death, but rather with a victorious power. The word tetelestai. It is finished. What I have done right now will apply for all the errors of human history. And finally, notice he's still faithful to the Lord. Father, into your hands. I commend my spirit, not whispering, not gasping, but with bold breath. Christ is victorious by his own death on the cross. He's taken from, first of all, it's got to be an assurance. He hasn't been on the cross that long. Many people who were crucified would be crucified for days and would actually end up being eaten by the vultures. Jesus is on the cross for only six hours, but what six hours? A Roman centurion pierces Jesus' heart and blood and water flow out of the pericardial sac around the heart, confirming that he is indeed dead. He's taken down from the cross. And Joseph and Nicodemus take him to a very nearby quiet tomb owned by Joseph, who was quite wealthy. He was, as Isaiah would prophesy, prophesied 725 years before. He died as a transgressor. But he was given the tomb of a rich man in his death. While Christ rested in the grave, his period of humiliation, as we know it, was past. That, folks, is the most amazing week in all of human history. But when you just hear those things, it really sounds more like a horror story than anything else. It just sounds like a very macabre story. But why? Why? And here, you may want to know how much time I have, but uh, let's go through just a few of the things that why this was so important and allow the long sentences, okay? Because I want you to see the connection. The most amazing week in human history, culminating in the cross, 
exposes the depths of human wickedness. What, what a catalog of vices. Envy, the fear of man, cowardice, hypocrisy, greed, pitilessness, racism, nationalism, peace at any cost, idolatry of the establishment, blasphemy, mockery. And it's especially the idolatry of the establishment because the religious leaders, quite frankly, put their money, their prestige, their temple above the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his wealth. And Pilate, representing Rome, Pilate would not have his position moved by acknowledging Christ's lordship over Caesar. And so it was the political and the religious establishment that was challenged by the Lord Jesus and that showed its idolatry. But see, that raises the question, who, who really was responsible for the death of Christ? And it's sad that Jews in every generation have been had blame placed upon them by, quite frankly, self-righteous hypocrites. Who was responsible for Christ's death? I was. And you were. There's the, the wonderful story of the, of the British writer of the early 20th century, G.K. Chesterton. And the London Times, speaking, how interesting, speaking about how in this new century, everything was just wayward and wrong. And so the, the London Times posed a question. What's wrong with the world today? Sound familiar? And G.K. Chesterton writes and says, Dear sirs, I am. Respectfully, G.K. Chesterton. Or if you want to put it the way one of the hymns puts it so, so powerfully. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon you? Alas, my treason, Jesus, has undone you. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied you. I crucified you. And the greatest pain Jesus bore, folks, was not the scourge. It was your sin. Imagine he became sin for us who himself knew no sin. And the cross was like a toothpick in comparison to that burden. But yeah, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Or Paul's simple but profound statement, he was crucified for our sins. Depths of depravity that begin with us, right? Number two, the most amazing week in human history culminating in the cross displays the heights of the real love of God. And I say that 
Because, brothers and sisters, a lot of times people talk about the love of God and it's gush, not reality. I, I don't know where I read it. I wish that I had written down the quotation. I write down quotations and forget them. I write down quotations, throw them out. This one I wish I'd written down and didn't, but it was a, it was a, a, a quotation from a Holocaust survivor. And the person said, I will not believe in God until God sees the children's shoes, the shoes of the children who are gassed, until God has smelled the smoke of human flesh, and until God has seen death right before him as I did. I will not believe in God unless I see these things. Brothers and sisters, this is God suffering in human history. He is the man, Christ Jesus, but he is the God-man. And he suffers as one of us. See, God, we emphasize God's sovereignty, and we should. Oh, Father, you are sovereign in all the affairs of men, and thank God that he is. Of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. May we never lose that. But, you know, if you just emphasize that, it can be rather cold, and it can be rather unfeeling. Oh, Father, you are sovereign in all the affairs of men. Never separate the sovereignty of Christ from the sufferings of Christ. In his sovereignty, he willingly endured those sufferings. The way the, the larger catechism expresses these things on how Christ humbled himself in his death. Christ humbled himself in his death and that having been betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate, and tormented by his persecutors, having also conflicted or warred with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness, felt and borne the weight of God's wrath, he laid down his life, an offering for sin, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. Those are his sufferings. Dan McCartney was a, was a, uh, a professor at Westminster Seminary uh, in the latter part of the last century, brilliant Hebrew scholar, and um, was found to have a, an inoperable cancer and from which he eventually succumbed. And so one of his books about suffering is, is, is just absolutely masterful, written right, right from the crucible of suffering. And he said, the main reason you can trust God in the midst of suffering is that he knows suffering firsthand. Wow. But here you have the light of the world who's subject to the worst forces of darkness and you have the one who, instead of taking the glory of the throne, 
as the one who becomes a servant. He became a servant even unto death, even, Paul says, the death of the cross. But why? Because of his love. Having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. And that's part of that greatest, most amazing week in human history. See, the more, the more you love a person, Margaret and I are, are going through this now with, with Pam Brown and with Kathleen Curto, both of whom are, are very, very special sisters to us. And as they go through their battle with cancer, the more you love others, the more you will take to yourself their pain and their suffering. And, and so that's one aspect of it. Jesus does that. But he didn't just feel it. He took the source of all that pain and suffering on himself. He became sin who knew no sin. And, and here's the key word. Jesus, like the great blotter, absorbed all of God's punishment against that sin. He absorbed it fully in himself. He so took into himself the poison of God's wrath that what would come out from him as a substitute are the blessed waters of life. And, and, and that, that's, that's getting to the heart of what all of this is about. Sin is punished in him so that there might be forgiveness by him. He's rejected so that you might be accepted. His death becomes your life. And remember, it's Jesus' humanity connected to his deity. In his humanity, he takes all of this in our place. But united to his deity, there's an infinity of ability of Jesus to apply all that he has done to all of his people. It's a magnificent, magnificent exchange. And folks, what do you do with, with that matter of the heights of God's love in suffering? Be astonished by it. We're not talking about a mathematical equation, folks. You're talking about the truly radical character of the love of God. Be moved by it and be consoled by it. If that Holocaust survivor were here, you could say, I call you to believe in God then. Because our God knows the empty shoes and our God knows the smell of burning flesh and our God knows what it is to experience death. It doesn't, doesn't answer all the questions of the problem of evil. It doesn't explain all those problems but it sure does answer it. And no other religion can do that, none in the world. And, and you, brothers and sisters, see, you say, well, what does this have to do with me? Remember that, that you do bear the cross in the Christian life. But you can trust Jesus as you bear your part in the cross. Because Jesus already bore the weightiest part of it and went through it, okay? 
And, and that brings us in, in the third place. We must never forget this. The most amazing week in human history culminating in the cross. Placards, true messianic victory. See, Jesus is the Messiah. But, but the victory that he attained wouldn't be a victory if it's just replacing Caesar. What do you do with the human heart? What do you do with the lordship of your heart that wants to usurp the rule of God? How do you deal with that? And that is part of the most amazing week culminating in the cross in human history, messianic victory. Because see, back of all that happened to Jesus is the power of the devil. Now is your hour and the power of darkness. One writer said the cross was the worst that human and non-human evil and rebellion could do. And the devil is in back of all of it. And it backfired big time. Paul tells the Colossians, by the cross, he disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What, what is that? What, what does that mean? Jesus so defeated sin and death and the devil on the cross that those things end up becoming the tools in his hands to make you more and more like Christ. That's a whole emphasis of Romans eight twenty-eight to 39. In the midst of all of these hellish things, you're more than conquerors through him who loved you and who loves you. Now, the cross, evil as it were, was evil was turned back on itself. There's a, one writer, a modern writer, who, I, I love his reference, his, his military reference that you'll see in here. He says, at the cross, evil is conquered as evil. Evil is conquered as evil because God turns it back Upon itself, he makes the supreme crime, the murder of the only righteous person, the very operation that abolishes the power of sin. The maneuver is utterly unprecedented. No more complete victory could be imagined. God entraps the deceiver in his own wiles. And here's the metaphor or simile. Evil like a judoist, tries to take advantage of the power of the good which it perverts. The Lord, like a supreme champion, replies by using the very grip of the opponents. You think you are defeating me, death, and I'm defeating you by absorbing the power of death. You think you are taking away that one who threatens you when it comes to your use of sin, I absorb all the power of sin on the cross. And you who govern this world, this world in its own spirit put me to death, you miss the fact that, as you'll learn next week, I'm going to come forth as a conqueror over all of that to begin a whole new world. I love the way John Calvin put it in one of his lesser-known writings. By the cross, destruction is destroyed, torment tormented, 
damnation, damned. Death, dead. Mortality made immortality. And don't you see how the justice of the Messiah and the love of the Lord Jesus are brought together here? Love in his sufferings, justice in his dealing with sin and death and the devil just as they deserve and being the blotter. And here's how this works out for you. Jesus says, your debt of sin and guilt, I took it on myself and I paid it. And because of that, you're free. There is no, there's no other religion that even gets off the starting line when it comes to dealing with those massive of issues. Okay, and then and as, as time goes on, just real quickly, the last, the last one is this, and you've got to really end with this one. It's so, it's so prominent in the Gospels. The most amazing week in human history, culminating in the cross, encourages you not to give up on anybody. What does that mean? How interesting. A centurion watching Jesus being crucified. He wasn't an onlooker, folks. He was part of the squad that was there to flagellate Christ and to nail him to the cross and to mock him and to spit on him and to blaspheme him. Yeah, that was the centurion, part of that group. And as he watches this outworking of the gospel, that one who became obedient even unto the death of the cross, God worked in him miraculously so that this member of the political establishment made the most astounding confession, surely this was the Son of God. Loyal Romans only called one person the Son of God, the Emperor. And when this representative of the establishment, whose salary was paid by the Emperor, makes this declaration... He says what true Christianity does. That establishment is not mine first. This, this one who was crucified, this is the one who's the Lord, and I'll follow him. You don't even give up on a centurion. The next is Joseph of Arimathea, who was wealthy, was well-known. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He, he had a lot of privileges that came to him because he was part of that august religious body that in the religious realm would be very, very much like being a senator or being a representative. And Joseph of Arimathea, who may very well have called for Christ's crucifixion, we don't know for sure, but he's the one who goes to Herod and basically risks his own position by saying, May I take the body and dispose of it properly? Wow. Political establishment, religious establishment, in which the power of the gospel is really shown as they see what is preached about Christ. My religious establishment and privilege is not the first thing. 
but the Lord Jesus Christ is. It's marvelous. What a way to, to come to the conclusion of at least the public portions of that most amazing week in human history. There was one more day. There was a Saturday. Jesus' body rests in the grave while in his soul and his spirit, along with the one at the cross who looked to him, he is in the paradise of God. But that's not the end. Because the most amazing day in human history is just about to dawn. And that's what we'll look at next week. What does all this mean? Well, again, one of the classic hymns. I can't say it better than this. O sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine, Yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior. Does I deserve thy place? Look on me with thy favor, vouchsafe, guarantee to me thy grace. What language shall I borrow? to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. And do you make this your prayer? Oh, make me thine forever. And should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. Our Lord, we pray that we will never be far from the events, these events of the most amazing week in human history. But realize that in this display of darkness, light shines through. And in this display of death is our life. What language can we borrow to thank you, dearest friend, our Lord Jesus? May our lives be sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to you, the great sacrifice. Amen. Amen.